This is Stigma, where we talk with leaders from many industries about how mental health and addiction have impacted their lives. Many people suffer silently from mental illness, addiction, depression, anxiety, and trauma. They never seek help because of stigma. In this podcast, host Stephen Hayes and his guests share their stories of recovery in order to encourage others to do the same. Here's Stephen. Welcome back to another episode of the Stigma Podcast. Today's guest is Ben Miller, and he is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Wellbeing Trust, which is a national foundation that's committed to advancing mental, social, and the spiritual health of, of the nation broadly. Uh, he's formally trained as a clinical psychologist. He spent a decade as a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, uh, and he's done extensive work around the integration of physical, traditional healthcare, and uh, behavioral healthcare uh, treatment solutions. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about what's wrong with the mental health care system. We're going to talk about stigma. We're going to talk about the government and policy. We're going to talk about what local communities can be doing and what individuals can be doing to uh, improve behavioral health of the population broadly and in our communities and nationally. So excited to share this with you. There's a number of ways to get in touch with Ben. Uh, I'll link those into the show notes. But without further ado, Ben, thank you for coming on, man. Absolutely. It's an honor. Would you mind telling our audience a little bit about your bio background and kind of how you got into the behavioral health field? Oh, we don't want to put him to sleep this early in the podcast. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that quickly. So I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and most of my career has been spent looking at ways that we can better integrate mental health into healthcare. So I started doing that early on as I was getting my internship uh, for my doctorate degree at the University of Colorado where I trained with some primary care, just national leaders, these folks who just woke up every day hungry for more primary care action. And they taught me the importance of really getting mental health into the places that people typically show up. So from there, I went and trained with one of the best in the country who actually wrote the book called Integrated Primary Care at the University of Massachusetts, a colleague, uh, Dr. Sandy Blunt. And Sandy taught me the importance of doing this clinically and how to really incorporate the family and the community into the work. And then for the last... Oh, goodness. So almost 10 years, I was at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where I focused on my, my research and policy uh, expertise and really tried to build out ways that we can help advance that integration work throughout the nation. And then for the last couple of years, I've been at the Wellbeing Trust, which is a national foundation focused on advancing the mental, social, spiritual health of the nation. And in that capacity, I'm the chief strategy officer. And what is the well-being trust more broadly? Like, what's the what? Are, what's the mission? How how do you guys go out and 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 help accomplish that mission? Yeah, well, we were started about four years ago by Providence Saint Joseph Health System. The health system at the time, like many health systems, recognized that there's a lot more that they could do to advance mental health. So rather than just create a new program or a new internal institute, what they did was they created a national foundation that was going to be able to not only help the system but really focus on the rest of the country. So we're an independent 501c3, and our, our mission is to advance the mental, social, spiritual health of the nation. And how we do that, we do it through really five domains, clinical transformation, community transformation, policy and advocacy, social engagement, and learning and data systems. So we believe that by making a massive impact on mental health, it's going to require us to have a focus on all five of those things at once. And so what are some of the the initiatives? You know, you guys have put out some great research, mm -hmm. you know, you 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 do a lot. It's, how big is the team and what are the initiatives <laughs> and kind of what does the day-to-day -day look like? 
Yeah, we're a really small team. That's the thing. If you go to our website, you can look at our staff, uh, wellbeingtrust.org, and you can see that we are a relatively small team. So I'd say we have a total of uh, seven FTE right now, which includes communications, grants management, you know, internal administration, et cetera. Um, we focus a lot right now, and I, I would say our priority has shifted in this, this weird COVID world that we are all living in. Uh, we've always been focused on how we can do something different in this nation for mental health and well-being, whether that's how we talk about it. We had a partnership with iHeartMedia where we really went online you know, on a regular basis with these radio personalities talking about ways that we can use language different to change the culture of mental health. But now I think our focus, while we still believe that that's an important priority, our focus has really become on what can we do as a nation to lift up these communities that are going to suffer most egregiously subsequent to COVID. And we can get into that if you want, but I mean, we're focused a ton on these stimulus packages that are coming out. When you're looking at trillions of dollars going out the door to help, how do we make sure that our Congress really does pay attention to the things that matter, which would be our mental health? So in this current stimulus that's coming out, what is the overlap with mental health? Is there, is there money allocated for, for behavioral health? In the last round, there was about $450 million that was allocated to SAMHSA from the $2 trillion. And if you just pull out your calculator, I think that's like 0.02%. So it's, it's actually typical and highly symbolic of how mental health has been treated most often through our policy work. We, we just give it short shrift all the time. It's small investments. If we pay attention to it, it's because there might have been a tragedy, but we really don't invest in it like we do major other health issues. The hospitals, which is important because we need our hospitals to stay alive, they got $100 billion. And you think about $450 million for mental health, it's really just kind of budget dust. Uh, actually, that's the way that I coined it in, in an op-ed that we just recently published is budget dust. And it's almost embarrassing because if you look at the second curve that's coming post-COVID, there's going to be a major mental health problem in this country. But the irony, and I know you know this, and I know your listeners probably know this, we had this problem to before COVID. There was a massive mental health and addiction epidemic before there ever was a pandemic. So I describe it as the epidemic within the pandemic, because these things are going to be this almost perfect storm that's going to lead us to a pretty tough place. And I don't want to be just constantly in the weeds on this, or excuse me, down in the weeds and, and negative, but it is something that we're going to have to address as a country if we're serious about turning the corner. Let me give you one example. So about three years ago, we worked with Trust for America's Health. And together, we put out a report we called Pain in the Nation. Pain in the Nation focused on these deaths that were due to drug, alcohol, and suicide, or what the economists have coined, deaths of despair. And we said, this is an unfortunate trend. We looked at the data since 1999, the first time that they were available through the CDC, and we projected those data forward, and we found that we would lose close to a 100% excuse me, increase or a million lives more than we had lost the previous decade if we didn't do anything different for, for the deaths of despair. And we just started raising the flag and say, listen, guys, if you're serious about addressing health in this country, you can't just have these conversations about insurance. That's important. Don't get me wrong. People need to be covered. But what we really need to be doing is we need to pay attention to the, the deep-rooted community-based solutions that are not given any type of resource to allow them to thrive. And we could get into that more if you want, but really that has been a major focus of our attention. And so when we see $2 trillion come down the pike, yeah, that's great. People need some money in their bank accounts, but what happens if those frontline clinicians, primary care clinicians, mental health clinicians 
can't keep their lights on. There will be no clinicians left to see the patients who ultimately need to be seen once we actually end up leaving our homes again. Why does it seem like the government doesn't get it? I mean, why is the CARE Act sitting in Congress just waiting for a hearing? Why why is it just budget dust is all we get in this space? You know, I think that's because of the history of how mental health has always been looked at. And we can go back decades. I mean, let's the, the piece of legislation that I typically draw people's eyes towards is 1963. This is when John F. Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Centers Act. And it was our it was the third wave of really bringing mental health into a new type of reform. And this wave was about deinstitutionalizing and getting people into community and allowing for communities to really lift up ways that they can provide more meaningful and comprehensive support for mental health. But here's the problem. That separate system that was created in the 60s never was really truly integrated because the science wasn't there. The leadership wasn't there. People talked about it really nicely on, you know, on on speeches and on paper, but nobody actually had a plan for how we were going to weave or braid mental health into the broader health reform. And this was actually codified in 1965 when we created the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. So you had Medicare and Medicaid, these public programs that are massively important for mental health. Remember today, Medicaid is the largest payer for mental health services in the country. And that actually codified it because it said that there are certain things that we want to make sure that you don't do so that mental health doesn't get reinstitutionalized or mental health programs don't get brought back into the hospital. And that was a good thing, right? But what it did was it created a separate system. It created separate benefits. It created separate financial mechanisms. It created different training modules. Basically, everything you can think of that goes into healthcare, mental health had its separation beginning in the 60s. So you ask me the question, well, why is it that people just don't pay attention to it now? I think it's because they I think it's because they continue to see it almost as an afterthought. It's a complementary yet and important, don't get me wrong. I think nobody would argue with it, the fact that it's important, but it's almost like this other specialty system that exists out there and that we don't necessarily have to pay as much attention to because we have this broader, more general health system that actually needs our attention a whole lot more. Other than that, and the underlying issues of stigma, nobody wants to talk about it. I'm frankly not sure why we as a nation have not paid more attention to this major issue that affects us all. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, that was the last bill JFK signed uh, before he he flew to Dallas, and he did it on behalf of his sister. His sister had been lobotomized uh, years before Mm -hmm. uh, and had struggled her whole life with mental health. Uh, So. It's, it was well-intentioned, and I think a lot of mm-hmm. politicians have made well-intentioned moves to try to help behavioral health, but it seems like they're sort of half-baked. They don't actually have the, the, con- the, the, the unintended consequences seem to be worse than the intended consequences. Absolutely. And I, I, unfortunately, healthcare as a, as, a, as a whole is a morass of competing business interests, and I, I don't mean to get too... <laughs> too down and cynical about this, but really, I mean, there there are businesses that are kept afloat by making sure that things are the way they are. So when you get someone that talks about integration or someone that talks about defragmenting or braiding or blending, that means that someone somewhere is going to be assimilated into someone else's world. And that mean, might mean financial loss. That might mean loss of control. That might mean a different culture, but it might also mean what's best for the community. It might actually be the solution that people are looking for. So I'm, you know, I'm not always popular when I go into certain rooms and talk like this way, 
But I believe that if what we were doing was working, then we would not see the horrendous trends in people losing their lives prematurely. With suicide being at all-time highs, with deaths to drug and alcohol being at all-time highs, I wouldn't say that that means that the system itself is, is really working. I think that that means something in our system, and it could be deeper than just delivery. Of course it is. But it's something about that is just not working well for us. One of the things, uh, I know you guys released this uh, framework for policy action uh, and, and healing the nation report back in January. And, and, and I know your past work has a lot to do with the integration you mentioned a few minutes ago between uh, primary care and behavioral care. And, and what I really want to understand as, as an investor, as a person who lives with bipolar, as somebody who's been through the system trying to get help, what is that integration going to look like? What can it look like? What should it look like? Yeah, I love the question because it actually gets to the heart of the visioning or the re-envisioning of what good should be for mental health. So for me, when I talk about integration, I describe it with two big words. It should be seamless and it should be comprehensive. By seamless, I mean that we shouldn't have to work as hard to make sure that mental health and addiction care is a natural part of any of our experience within the healthcare system. So when you're in a primary care setting, and this is something you allude to around the integration work, if you see your primary care doc and you say, I think I might actually be depressed, or I'd love to talk to you a little bit about my anxiety, or I might be drinking too much, or whatever it might be, the, the first and most important thing that could be done is to have an expert that can step in and provide some type of assistance. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. A typical scenario for an individual that is diagnosed with any type of mental illness is a referral. They might be, if you're in a a non-mental health setting, that referral might be to a specialist in a different setting. And we want to make sure that we preserve our specialty settings for those who definitely need it. But why should we have to refer everything that could be treated if you had mental health provisions in those places that people initially identified with need? That's That's the seamless piece. So if you're in there with the primary care doc, they say, okay, Dr. Miller's down the hall. He's our clinical psychologist. He's going to come in here and he's going to talk with us about ways that we might be able to work together as a team. It is not about the individual clinician. It is not about a referral. It is about seamlessly making sure that continuity is sustained and maintained across a variety of clinicians in one setting. That is the vision. Now, it's hard to do that because, as I already mentioned, the fragmentation that we've got in delivery is just as pervasive in how we finance care. So if you're a mental health clinician, you might find that the way that you are paid for is a rate-limiting factor in you being able to seamlessly integrate yourself anywhere. And that's something that we fight against all the time. But we just want this to be made easier for everybody. And I'll, and I'll say one more sentence on this one. If we look at our kids, we know that a lot of kids... The, uh, actually 35% of kids who have a mental health need, the only clinician that they're seeing is their pediatrician. And while there's amazingly excellent pediatricians out there, I can't imagine that any of them would say no to an expert who could help them around mental health or behavioral issues. So if you're the mom and you're bringing in your kid and you think that they might have ADHD or they're just acting a little lethargic, you're not quite sure what it is, having somebody that can clearly discern what's going on, and provide meaningful action plan, some type of solutions-based approach for that kid and the family is going to make a huge difference on that that individual, on the patient. Because it means that mom doesn't have to take off work again. Kid doesn't have to miss school again. 
There doesn't have to be frustration of waiting six weeks while there's a problem. All the things that we lament about, uh, lament on for mental health go away when you make sure that mental health is just a natural part of that initial encounter wherever you are in healthcare. Now that's seamless. Now let me go to comprehensive. Comprehensive is really just about making sure that we're able to do as much as we possibly can to assure that your needs are going to be met. That means that it might be something around a social issue. It might mean that you're being displaced from your home. It might mean you have an immigration issue. How can we make sure that the mental health clinicians are taking into account those true socioecological factors and incorporating them into the intervention? By doing that, we provide so much more of a comprehensive approach to the type of care that that person would get rather than just what's your diagnosis and how can I treat it? We're actually taking care of the whole person. So as we say, it's the patient in the context of family. It's the family in the context of community. Any intervention that does not look at it that way is going to miss the mark. That's that's incredible. You're blowing my mind here. It's two questions to follow up there. One on the seamless part with the vision that you have and, and with the, the, the barrier being fragmentation, how do we... Where do we go to take the first few steps to solve that? How do we reduce fragmentation so that we can start to work towards that vision? Well, the the number one and most obvious place for us to begin, which I hate to say this as a policy person, I'll get to what most people can do in community in just a second. But as a policy person, it's about financing. It's about how you pay for care. If you wanted people to be able to deliver these team-based approaches to care, you'd pay for it. So how do we think about new and more robust payment models that allow for primary care to have the resources to hire their own behavioral health or mental health clinician. That to me is a major first step. And actually we've done some research on this. We did a study in Western Colorado where we looked at primary care practices that had integrated mental health. Some of them had were continuing to being paid for by fee for service. So that means that the mental health clinician was dropping a bill whenever they saw a patient. The other practices that we compared it to also had on-site mental health, but we didn't ask them to pay for their care through fee for service. We actually gave them a global budget. We said, okay, guys, here's the amount of money you have to spend for this month for this amount of patients. We want you to do whatever necessary to take care of as many people as you can. And I mean, this is not a shocker to anybody, and we can list the citation for folks to go look at later. But when you compare fee-for-service to more of a global budgeting exercise, fee-for-service limits the number of patients you could see, the amount of time you can spend with them. Basically, everything that I would want on that comprehensive arm, you can't do as well. But when you provide a budget and you tell the clinicians to do whatever is best to take care of those patients, not only do you get to see more patients, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but you actually get to see more patients at a higher quality because you're able to spend more time with them. You're able to actually get to the needs in a much more efficient way and to be more effective with your interventions. So for me, my number one is you got to pay for it differently. And you alluded to this, but we have a framework, Healing the Nation. So it's healingthenation.wellbeingtrust.org. You can go and look at some of the financial recommendations that we have for the integration. But let me get to the second one here, because it's actually about the folks that would be listening to this podcast. And that one to me is about how we talk about it and what we expect for mental health in our own communities. So how we talk about it. If we don't begin to describe mental health as a natural part of healthcare, then we are perpetuating the problem of fragmentation. As I already alluded to, language changes culture. And when we don't use language in a different way to describe a different construct or vision for health, we in fact are actually just replicating and perpetuating all these things that we know to be broken. Mental health is not separate from your health. 
It is central to your health. And delivery, financing, coverage should reflect that. The second thing is what we demand and what we expect. Most of us who've been sick and have had to interface with the healthcare system can probably tell you stories about how we wish it would have been different. With mental health, that's probably less the case because many folks don't seek care. We know the vast majority of individuals that are actually meet criteria for a mental illness don't actually get care to begin with. So that's a problem because we don't know what good looks like for mental health. But what I would say is think about any other service, whether it be healthcare or not, and think about what you would expect when you're talking about one of the the most intimate things in your life. Would you want to have to wait six weeks to get help? Would you want to have to disclose your story to 12 different people before you finally found the right one? Would you want to have to dance around and figure out how to get clinicians to communicate with each other or how to get the businesses that you're working with to communicate to each other? No. You no, because when I walk into the ER with a broken leg, all I have to do is limp in. That's right. I have to do nothing else. They solve my problem. That's right. But when I when my life is falling apart because of addiction and mental illness, yep. I like it's almost impossible to get someone to help you. That's right. And isn't that the, I mean, I say this all the time. It's the bumper sticker on my policy car. It's the cruelest irony of healthcare is the more problems you have or the more intense the crises, the harder you have to work. Now, don't get me wrong. Your broken leg's important. You got to get that taken care of. But what happens when you begin to think about just like, I mean, let's think of something not healthcare related. Okay. I, you and I are talking about the latest, greatest book or movie that we read or watched. Okay. People can immediately go online. They can go to their favorite website. They can buy it. And literally it could be in their inbox, you know, download, digital download within 24 hours, 12 hours, instantaneously, whatever. That to me is what we should be expecting for delivery in healthcare. Mental health should be no different than your ability to get seamless access to something else. But yet we've made it so unbelievably hard that it just leads people to frustration. So we should be demanding more is my whole point there. Who solves this problem? Is it the insurance companies? Is it the government? Is it startups? Is it healthcare providers? Who who needs to take the lead here? And if it's not any one person, how do we get all these different groups working together? Oh, wow. That's the $50 million question right there. Well, it is all the above. We all have to have a role that we play here. So I work in philanthropy. Philanthropy has to play a role. How can we invest in not only just more models that integrate care, but how do we fight the policies that perpetuate that fragmentation? We've got to think of a way that foundations can come together and really address some of those most more structural and policy issues If we don't, then unfortunately, we're just investing in sustaining programs that are never going to sustain on their own. From our provider perspective, how do we make sure that our frontline clinicians are trained appropriately to know how to identify and treat mental health, but wait for it, to know how to do it in a team-based way? One of the cool things that we worked on when I was at University of Colorado is a set of competencies for mental health clinicians to work in primary care. And we actually created an entire website with YouTube vignettes, and et cetera. It's called makehealthwhole.org. And you can go there and you can actually see what competencies should be necessary for a mental health clinician working in a primary care setting. That to me is how our clinicians can be frontline leads of what good could look like. We think about our payers. As I already mentioned, you got to pay for this differently. Well, there's the business case for why we should integrate has been out there for a long time and we still don't do it. And I think that's in part because the patients, we, us, you and I, everyone, we have got to demand something different from the people who purchase care, which would be our employers. You know, most individuals in this country get their health insurance through their employer. And so how do we say to our employer, listen, 
that benefit that I've got for mental health, not only are they not maintaining the federal law of mental health parity, it's actually, it forces me to go see too many clinicians when I should only be able to see a team. I want to see a team. How can you buy something from the payer that is actually going to allow me to have my needs met? So those are five Ps. And I think that they are actually instructive for us to think about how we can approach this in a much more comprehensive way, but it's, it's got to be done together. So your last part was like, how do we do this together? Well, this is what I'm working on. And I think, you know, people like you really have got to be involved in this too, because we need all sectors. We've got to have a vision of what good looks like. I've said this five times today. Without that vision of what good looks like, without the North Star, then all we're doing is what I would like to describe as disconnected brilliance. It's a good innovation there in the tech sphere. It's a good idea over there in the delivery. It's a wonderful story that we heard from that family. How do we bring these things together? in somewhat of a cohesive social movement type of approach. And that requires, number one, top of the list, clarity and vision and consistency in language. Without that, we're stuck. Now, alongside that, you got to have a financial engine. You got to have a policy muscle, things to really push it through. You got to have something that maintains the energy behind the movement. All of those things really require you know, an organization or a group of organizations to come together. But without that number one, I feel like we're just really spinning our wheels. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a lot. It makes me wonder. I, mean, I know you guys are doing a lot of work here. I know I'm investing in the space, but mm-hmm. this is this is bigger than just your organization or mine or the the others that, that I know of. Who's leading the way here? Who? Where can people look to be directed towards that North Star? Well, I think that... <sighs> The easiest answer is that there's probably somebody somewhere in your community that is leading the way. We just don't know about it. You know, there was an idea that was brought about in the 60s that's not a new idea, but I use it today. It's called Communities of Solution. And it recognizes that when there are problems that are found in community, the solutions are right there in community too. It's not necessarily always a top-down. Top-down can codify and can support and can really enhance what's being done at the local level. But there are ideas that people just do every day because they know it's the right thing to do. Let me give you a couple of examples of that, and then I'll tell you what we're doing. Northeast Colorado, like many rural areas, has had some major issues around addiction. Opioids have been just running rampant for the last several years, and we know that there's a lot of people in pain that are probably taking advantage of some of these medications just to solve some of their pain, frankly. It's been, it's not to blame here. It's just to say that there's a lot of folks in pain and we will do whatever we can to manage that pain. So in Northeast Colorado, it's a rural town and there's a lot of uh, farmers. There's a lot of um, farming families and communities that are involved in the farming. And so we said, we got to make it normal for people to talk about pain. We got to make it normal for people to be able to say, I think I might be taking too many of those pills and I'm afraid what happens when I stop taking them. And so what they did was they actually met with community. They said, here's the evidence-based guidelines on what needs to happen to get people help with opioid use disorder. What would you all do to get the message out? And they started doing simple things, posters in the, in the mail rooms or uh, beer coasters at the feed stores where people are checking out. And on these coasters, they would say, you're not alone. Opioid use disorder is treatable, that there are solutions to help you with addiction just to give people a different way to talk about it. That is a community of solution approach. It's not something that I here in the state of Colorado could say, here's the two policies that are going to help that small town in Northeast Colorado. 
it's that community coming forward and saying, here's our ideas and what we can do together. That's one. I'll give you another example from Colorado. In the San Luis Valley, uh, there's a family-run Mexican restaurant, and they found that there were too many, actually, the restaurateur, the chef, he said very point blank that there were too many of his brothers in arms that were dying due to drugs. And he wanted to figure out what they as a community could do to talk about this differently. So what he started doing is he created table toppers. Really simple idea. Table toppers that he put on the tables of his restaurant that asked questions of the patrons. Have you talked about mental health? Are you in pain? Have you used? Whatever the question was. And it got people to really have a different dialogue, a different conversation. That to me is from the ground up ways that we can bring forward a different vision of what good looks like. When we've normalized the conversation so much that we can have an amazing tamale and talk about drug addiction. It's just a beautiful, beautiful scenario that's grounded and deeply rooted in community. Now, what are we doing? And this is the last thing I'll say on this one. We did what we thought was best, which is we got together with a bunch of really smart people, including communities, and we said, we've got to heal as a nation. That if we're in pain, the only way forward is to heal. So we created Healing the Nation, which is a framework for excellence around mental health. And in that framework, we highlight all the places that people show up with mental health and addiction needs. And we say, why should we think about policies that are not supportive of that integrated approach? How can we put mental health clinicians into our schools where our kids are and spend more time than they do at home sometimes? How can we make sure that people are kept out of jail who the main reason they're going to jail is because they have an underlying mental health or addiction? Okay, how do we make sure that we go into our places of employment for those that are employed or unemployed? And how do we provide robust programs and benefits that allow them to feel like they are taken care of? These type of things is what we lift up in healing the nation because we know that if we are going to solve the problems, it's not going to happen overnight. This is incredible. I mean, it sounds to me like a lot of the problems stems from from what we talk about here on this podcast and what I talk about every day, which is stigma. I mean, it's hard to get somebody to talk about their problems and open up and be vulnerable and honest and authentic. And it seems like in just encouraging that sort of interaction and behavior in our communities is probably one of the biggest potential solutions. It is. And, and let's define stigma for just a second. As if you look at the literature, it, they define it very clearly as difference plus deviance. So the difference is the end group versus the out group. So the person that has mental illness versus the person that does not. But it's not stigma unless there's deviance where you're treated differently if you're in the out group. And that's a very subtle notion here. But it's actually, it's, it's, it's in some ways, it's made worse by our structural issues and our social issues that we really, how we talk about it. How we talk about it to each other is the social side. So let's just break this down a little bit further. If we really wanted to do something about stigma, we would first of all recognize who's in the in-group, who's in the out-group. For the case of today, let's just say mental illness, okay? When we look at the social side, it's how we talk to each other. When someone comes to you and they say, you know what? I think I got a problem, or I've been drinking too much on the weekends, or I just can't stop using that substance, whatever it might be, how do you initially respond? Do you minimize? Do you turn away? Do you make light? Do you pretend like you didn't hear? What do you do? However you respond, that social element could reinforce the stigma that the person might already feel against themselves. Okay. And how we do that is going to be, I think, the next several years of work. Now we're getting better at talking about it. I mean, it's demonstrated by you and your amazing work, but also just podcasts like this, where we can actually be open 
and say, you know what, this mental health is all of us. Like, let's embrace that. But we've also got to address the structural side too. And let me give you some examples of that. So an example of structural support of stigma would be that when you're at the primary care doc and you say, you know what, I've been having thoughts of suicide. And if they are not properly trained and don't know what to do, the first thing that they might do is to say, you have to go to the emergency room. Okay. Now we want to protect people. We want to make sure that everybody is safe. And if you are truly suicidal, we definitely want to make sure that you are protecting yourself from yourself. But you know that is actually an example of a structural stigma because it says, we don't do that here. Let me send you somewhere else that will take care of that. But as I already mentioned, if we had more robust integrated programs, then structurally, we're providing more assistance to that person in a time of crisis. If you don't address the structural and the social side of things simultaneously, stigma will be so, it'll be a part of our lives for the foreseeable future. Now, I get a lot of grief for this, but I I think I'm right. And if you look at the literature, I think it supports me on this one, that simply having public education campaigns is insufficient in changing stigma. It's really good at changing attitudes and maybe even some of the cultural norms, but it doesn't do a thing about those structures that I've put I described. And those structures have been around for a long time. And if we don't address those two, whew, I mean, you and I are probably going to be back on this podcast again in five years talking about what to do about stigma. What's, yeah, it's just, it's overwhelming. What's something that as we wrap up here, what's something that we can all be doing as individuals? And I, I think one of the things I hear and what you're telling me and what I've read and the work you guys have done is, is there's something to be said for the right language. How are we talking about this? So what can the average person do in their community uh, with their language or with how they engage on this topic to, to help in some small or even big way? I love the question because it gets to the heart of personal responsibility and what each of us can do to really advance something that is about every one of us. And I believe that the number one thing is that we have to have enough knowledge and attitudinal change in order to embrace the fact that mental health is indeed something that will impact us in our lifetimes. What do we mean? What do I mean by that? It means if it's not you, if it's not your family, if it's not your your friend, it's your neighbor, it's your coworker, it's someone in your life. We have to know how to talk to each other. Go online. There's some great resources out there. There's training modules that are available that people can take. But it really just begins by having those conversations. And so tonight, if you're at your your dinner table and you're sitting around with your family, ask the question, what does mental health mean to you? What role do you think we should play in supporting each other's mental health? How can we be best of use to our community when they're hurting or in a time of need? What would you do if a friend texted you and said, I wanted to die? These are conversations that if we don't have now, when they happen to us in real life, and they inevitably will, we will be ill-prepared to manage them. Our kids, I think about this all the time. How do we make sure that our kids who are growing up with cell phones basically in their hands and internet through their bodies from birth, like how do we make sure that we have given them the proper ways to, to respond to their colleagues, to their friends when there is a crisis? That is a different world. The stigma of you know the 60s and 70s is that we would put somebody in the back room and pretend they weren't there and just not talk about it. We cannot avoid talking about it now. It is too much of the at the forefront of our discussions in healthcare that we have to learn how to talk about this. But more importantly, 
by not talking about it, we're going to see our trends get worse and people dying. And you know, it's the famous AA mantra, right? Secrets keep us sick. Secrets, there are no such thing as secrets when it comes to your family and your health. You got to be able to talk about these things. And so I would say the number one thing that you can do is simply have the conversation with your family, begin to normalize what it would be when these issues come your way, and then talk to smart folks who are are experts in this field. Go online, find credible resources, and be prepared for when that time comes when someone asks you for help. What did I miss? I mean, what's the 500-pound gorilla on this topic that that we should be talking about that that, that people are missing in these conversations or, or that maybe we missed here today? Well, there's a lot of them. I mean, maybe for your audience, let's let me list, lift up a couple. I, I think one is that we are searching desperately for new technologies that are going to really provide some meaningful, almost solution or reprieve from this massive problem of mental health in our country. And I would say that those those technologies, those solutions are really what our country, especially right now in a time of COVID, we need those desperately, but we need them to be grounded in what we know to be most impactful, which is the social element. How can you connect people? How can you provide an amazingly cool intervention through an app, but also still maintain that level of relational aspect or quality to it? That would be number one. I think that's a 500 pound gorilla because I every day there's a new company that's coming out that's laying claim to the fact that they're gonna solve the mental health crisis in this country. And if you look at deeply at many of them, they don't get at the relational piece. That's number one. Number two, I think that the entrenched business interests on in the mental health world are something that we have to talk about. It's tough. There's a lot of people that have made a lot of money over the years by keeping things separate, and, and I don't necessarily fault them for that. It's what we knew. But scientific evidence does not allow us to proceed as if the mind and the body are separate. And so we should not be allowed to proceed if we are treating mental health in any way that separates it out from our overall health. By doing so, again, we are just symbolic of the problem, and there are businesses who are symbolic of the problem. And I think that's a hard conversation to have. There's a role for everybody here. We've just got to figure out how to reposition, reallocate, redistribute, whatever the words are, for those businesses to actually help us integrate instead of fragment. Well, that that's really helpful. It's really insightful, and I'm I'm really grateful for a couple of things. I mean, one, the work you guys are doing. Two, I'm extremely grateful that you would take the time to come on our podcast and explain some of these concepts in a way that I think will really help a lot of folks, especially my audience, who really want to help here. They want to build something. They want to do something to help, whether it's in the recovery community or the startup community or wherever they may be. So I just wanted to say a heartfelt thank you so much uh, for, for coming on and doing this today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And thanks so much for what you're doing. Your leadership matters. And I'm glad that we've got people out there like you on the front lines. Another special thank you to Ben for coming on. This conversation was incredible. I learned a lot. I hope that our listeners do too. Um, We are grateful for our listeners for being here. We'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us on Twitter at StigmaCast. You can find us on the internet at StigmaPodcast.com. And if you enjoy our content, we would really appreciate a subscribe and a review on the Apple platform or whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And you know, finally, if you want to email us directly, our email address is info at stigmapodcast.com. And we really, as always, we would definitely want to hear your thoughts on the episode and, and your thoughts on the topics we discussed. So please reach out. Thanks again for being here.